0: Another rebound in a crowd by the Brock Ness Monster. Ooh, that would be Pedro. Ooh, Jim Bob Goli, Holy moly! How about the Tasmanian Slovenian with the stop, drop, and pop? Tiffany Hop huh? in the King Harold Barber Shop.
1: You're
2: listening to The King's Herald Show, a bi-weekly NBA podcast that covers all the ups and downs, ins and outs of your one and only Sacramento Kings. As always, I'm your host, Will Griffith, and with me today are my partners in futility and a very special guest. First up, writer for The King's Herald and my podcast whiz, Tony Zipteris. Tony, how's it going today?
3: It's going good, Will. And Jerry, I'll I'll let you uh, introduce the guest, Will, but I'm I'm doing pretty good. We got a a win last night. Um, I know, you know, for some people that's good, for some people that's bad, but I'm sure we'll talk about it all today. He's a, uh,
2: he's a former Sacramento Kings head coach, GM, and color analyst, the general manager of a WNBA champion, an Indiana Basketball Hall of Famer, and the true pride of French Lick, Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, as always, it is a pleasure to have you here today.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, obviously, uh, you guys, it's always a lot of fun and following a win, uh, you know, and we, I think we got to thank uh, Chris Stapp's Porzingis. I thought he chipped in quite a bit on that win, but so we'll... <laughs> anyway...
2: Well, let me, uh, let's get to our special guest then. He's covered the league for SB Nation's Liberty Ballers. He's a former writer and editor of Sports Illustrated. Um, currently a Bleacher, reporter, uh, Bleacher Report contributor and author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Jake Fisher, thanks for coming on to talk to us today, Jake. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. So I want to set the scene here a little bit um, because we're going to ignore pretty much the last two weeks of Kings basketball, and uh, rightfully so. Uh, The Kings just stopped a nine-game losing streak last night and a win against the Mavericks, Um, but they're also 14 seasons into the rebuild. That spanned two different ownership groups, four general managers, and 10 head coaches now. Um, I think LaMarcus Aldridge just uh, retired last week, and I saw a stat that said uh, LaMarcus Aldridge went his entire time in the league without ever seeing the Kings in the playoffs. And so uh, that's why we uh, that's why we drag Jake here today to talk about it. Uh, basically, we have you on here today, Jake, so that we have something to uh, something to distract us from uh, from the, the season of Kings basketball and to uh, to stir stir the Hornets nest a little bit. So Jake, uh, let, let's let's talk first about the uh, the genesis of your book. Where did this come from? Where where did you decide that the biggest thing you wanted to talk about is losers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm from Philly originally, and like you mentioned at the top, I was covering the Sixers for Liberty Ballers, the SB Nation blog, when I kind of started out my career right at the same time that I hired in Philadelphia, um, when Vivek Ranadive bought the Kings, when you know the, the Magic hired Rob Hennigan from Orlando, when the Suns hired... Um, Ryan McDonough from Boston and people forget the Celtics traded KG and Paul Pierce the same night that Hinkie traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans so and I went to school in Boston too so I was from Philly I was living in Boston I was kind of in the throes of this tanking era that you know I've really come to mint it as and you know to bring it to this podcast you know the Kings are I think had to be included in that time period being that they were not intentionally trying to lose games, as you guys know, from the onset of the Vecron and ownership. But by hook or by crook, you know, they're they're an example and a case study for why teams should tank, theoretically, right, being that, you know, from DeMarcus on down, Sacramento has never in those 14 years theoretically gotten high enough to get a guy who could be like that bonafide no matter what. Um, you know, franchise centerpiece. Maybe it is De'Aaron Fox. Obviously, you guys have a lot of, you know, excitement around him right now, but the, the Kings never really did plummet all the way down to that top three pick to get that surefire type prospect.
2: I think, I think our, our one attempt at it was Marvin Bagley at the number two in the year yeah. that Luka Doncic could have been picked in uh, instead. And uh, even that year, Vladi had kind of talked a little bit about how he wasn't trying to tank, that they were hoping that the lottery gods would reward them for. Playing it through that season a little bit, Jerry. Um, maybe you can lend a little credence to this, only because you've been around this franchise longer than some of us have been alive. Um, <laughs> what What are your opinions on the Kings and whether or not you could officially call it tanking or just plain bad basketball?
0: Well, well there's no doubt it, it hasn't been tanking. It's been it's been bad basketball uh, because I think <laughs> this team, for the most part, has always been trying to win. With the exception, I know one year, I think the year that the team just uh, totally collapsed and, and uh, basically won 17 games and should have had the first pick. And as you know, got the fourth pick, which uh, I've always said that that's why they call it a lottery. There is no guarantee of a pick and all that. So, but, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a case of bad basketball, just misjudging uh, the talent you have or the talent you're going to get or what you're trying to do. And uh, you know, it, it's, it's like say, I mean, certainly getting a top pick, which the Kings did when they got uh, actually had the third pick and lost it to, the year they got Fox, which went to five. And certainly mm-hmm. looks like he is a, a guy you could you, you certainly could say is a franchise type player. Uh, just, uh, of course, one franchise type player, as we all know, takes you not very far.
1: Yeah, what the book really highlights 2013, 2016, the kind of the tail end of DeMarcus's time period there. I think it was necessary to include because you're right, Jerry, when you get that, it, it, it takes luck just to get that guy, first of all, right, it takes lottery luck just to get a position to be able to draft that guy. And then it takes a lot of luck and skill afterwards to build a contender around that person too. And it's a lot harder once you get to a 50-win playoff team to then become a championship contender. So that's why I thought they were really interesting and, and kind of like a quote-unquote case study to include compared to all these other teams.
2: Jake, I think one of the things that I got from the, uh, the chapter that, that you sent us previously to, uh, to read over is that in one way or another, tanking takes a discipline that the Kings didn't have. Now, yeah. for, for better or for worse, um, there are moves like um, Pete Alessandro with Nick Stauskas. That mm-hmm. you, you mentioned uh, uh, another one, uh, C.J. McCollum, that they were going to take C.J. McCollum unless Ben McElmore fell. Yes. And then they didn't have the courage to stick to their guns on that one.
1: Yeah, and th- there's plenty of more I can also, just to give you guys a heads up, I can t- discuss outside the chapter. It was just the easiest one I had to send you. But yeah, I mean, the book starts off running through the 2013 drafts. You know, Pete gets Guit- I mean, you guys all know this, that the second he got hired, it was already the countdown of like, oh, God, we hired the executive after the coach, this new owner. He's coming from Golden State. Like, what's going to what, – how can this possibly, you know, be some pot to go heading forward? And that first example, you're right. Like, I know on pretty good authority that heading into that draft night, Sacramento was dead set on taking CJ. They thought he was going to be there. They thought he was going to be the point guard to pair to Marcus Cousins. And, you know, maybe they had this big man-little man duo for a decade, you know. But they had one condition. It was if Ben Macklemore is still available, we'll take him there. And there was a reason he was going to be there. Like, they knew it was possible because – I forget if it was Phoenix or Orlando, but one of those two teams, when when Macklemore showed up to his workout, he forgot his sneakers for the pre-draft workout. Like, not a great impression for a job interview, essentially, you know. And he looked looked really bad in the other one. Those teams were picking – um, uh, two and five that year, so there was there was a lot of expectations that Macklemore could slide, and you're right, like a, a good um, you know executive who who is entrenched in his ideals doesn't back off that selection. I think, um, and there there was that type of shifting you know goalposts throughout Pete, Pete's time period there, and and to not just run run his name through the mud, I think there is as as we can happily get into. I think it was, there was a lot of complicating factors from Vivek to um, Malone's staff to, you know, obviously the George Carl ghost was floating in the background throughout that whole entire time. So there's, there's definitely a lot of factors that that fall short, that fall past Pete's shoulders too.
0: Well, I I will tell you a couple things on that is that I know kind of for a fact, I was certainly just in broadcasting, but I, I knew that, uh, and, you know, but Ron Devey went on record as saying they, they would wanted to move up to get McLemore, not just take him at seven. They were. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, I always yeah. say that, that that's always the scary thing when teams are so sure of some some 19 year old that they're willing to move up spots to get him because invariably it doesn't go well. And 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 as uh, I think uh, we've talked about on here, I know uh, Jeff Petrie is the outgoing uh, GM They tried to give advice regarding Giannis Adetokounmpo. Uh, who who uh, he was really intrigued with. Now, I don't know, you know, I can, and he, you know, Jeff's an honorable man. He wouldn't have said definitely that's who we'd have taken, that sort of thing. But, but uh, he was very intrigued by him and tried to pass that information along, which uh, really went nowhere. And of course, I would probably, you know, want to point out a couple of things on your, on the, you know, the lottery kind of mentality is that, you know, uh, Milwaukee has been built basically on guys who weren't lottery picks in any way yeah. same way with uh, Utah and uh, I mean so it, it's actually you know the old it, it's not uh, where you pick it's who you pick is probably even more important to, uh, obviously having the third pick uh, if there's a great player there it gives you a better chance of getting them that's for sure but uh, you know just just as a point of reference that's all I'd say but but I thought that was uh, you know was intriguing on the on the Macklemore thing to say, boy, not only are we thrilled to get him, but we would have, we, we really would have moved up, give up something to move up to take the same guy that later on, you yeah, not really that good.
3: We've heard so many stories over the years about players. The Kings meant to draft should have draft, but didn't draft. They just missed him. They almost had Giannis. They almost had CJ McCollum. They're almost like the, uh, the Boston Celtics version of the, the star player they almost traded for. But Jerry, to your point about uh, Ben McLemore and the Kings sort of targeting him early and and even uh, thinking about trading up for him, that's sort of the same thing we saw with Marvin Bagley where um, draft lottery happens, Kings move to number two, uh, Sacramento's all excited about the (laughs) prospects of drafting Luka Doncic, and then as early as the night of the lottery you had uh, Jonathan Gavoni of, I think, Express at the time on a podcast with Woj talking about how the Kings were already targeting Marvin Bagley, and they love Marvin Bagley and they're not as high on Luka as some of the other teams might be. And there's just another example of the Kings sort of telling on themselves. Not only were they wrong on Marvin Bagley like they were wrong on Ben McLemore, but they were wrong months in advance of the draft and had the wrong guy targeted the entire way. And um, that's never where you want to be as an organization um, that is, sort of consistently telling on themselves in their, in their errors in, in roster movement.
1: And I remember covering that draft and, and talking to people afterwards too. The Kings are really high on Michael Ford Jr. They weren't necessarily going to take it too, but they were considering it. They were definitely considering it. And they were even thinking about ways to trade back into the lottery to get him too. So.
0: Yeah, I know that for a fact, Jake, you're exactly right. I, I mean, I know, from Vlade's own lips that they were extremely high on Michael Porter Jr. And obviously the injuries, uh, but I mean, it's, it's also true. Uh, Well, there's good reason you should have been high on Michael Porter Jr. if he can stay healthy, uh, the guy's a damn player.
2: I I think (laughs) then there's also uh, opportunities like uh, you talked about with um, uh, specifically, there was an argument between uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim and uh, Pete D'Alessandro regarding whether it should be Alfred Payton or Nick Stauskas. And, in fact, that kind of those discussions led to Sharif Abdul-Rahim kind of being shown the door in one way or another, and neither of those guys have turned out to be anything. So you're you're arguing over over rocks in the dirt rather than anything that 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 matters in the in the long term on that one too. So it, I think Jerry, on that one, I, I feel like you, you're right that it's not where you pick it's Who you picking? And in that one, you're not picking anybody. Well,
0: well, so often that is the case. But except Peyton is a player, Nick isn't. I mean, really, I mean, there's a, that's a difference. There's one that actually can play. Maybe yeah, he, should be right. a, he should be a backup, maybe not a starter where Nick really is a G league player. That's it.
1: Sure. Yeah. A 2014 Kings draft is pretty interesting. I mean, we all know the draft 3.0, right. Where, which is another reason why I thought they were fascinating to include in this book being, I mean, tanking came really in vogue in 2013, 2014 for a couple of reasons. The first one was that there were all these analytical-minded executives like Pete, like Sam Hinckley, like Ryan McDonough, the guys you mentioned at the top. They were all rising to power, taking over these franchises. And, you know, any analytical study shows contenders are built on multiple stars who are usually high lottery picks. And that is why – that was the math that pushed a lot of these guys to doing that. But the other reason was that that 2014 class was supposed to be the best class since the 03 class. And honestly, it's probably it was probably the most hyped class – even still up until this 2021 year right now. And the other third factor was because of that 03 class, LeBron, Wade, Bosch, all going to Miami, they were running the league, right? So all these teams thought we might as well bottom out, be bad, We'll get these guys by the time LeBron's out of his prime jokes on everybody now, but by, by that was the thinking then, you know, now we'll cultivate these guys just like Philly's done just like Boston's done. Phoenix didn't think they would do it with Devin Booker at 13, but that was their strategy too. And Sacramento, they didn't have an analytics department at all. All they have was Dean Oliver pretty much in 2014 and like to, to outsource, I mean, they're, Compared to those other franchises that were running, you know, full complex databases and all these different, you know, analytical types, like block rate, steal rate, all this stuff, projecting all these models. The Kings brought in, you know, five white guys who had never worked in the league before to compare and contrast all these players. And the the, the numbers definitely pointed towards Alfred Payton. Like those guys definitely said, we think it should be Alfred Payton. And the coaching staff. That was the whole thing. Mike Malone's coaching staff always preached to the front office, we need to be better defensively before we can be better offensively to be a legitimate team. No one cares if you're a top 10 offense but have a 30th-ranked defense. That's not going to actually win basketball games. So they were pushing for Alfred Payton. They were pushing for Alfred Payton. But Vivek loved Nick. He loved Doug McDermott too. The Kings went to Chicago a lot to because those guys are both priority sports guys with Mark Arlstein. They were you know watching them work out. Doug McDermott told me that they were like dunking everything to show their quote unquote sneaky bounce, you know? Um, and I know Vivek was like taken by Nick partially because Nick could shoot like 95 out of a hundred free throws right in the gym. And he did it in front of them and like that impressed Vivek. So it is interesting how like one little thing, I don't know. I'm not saying that's necessarily just the one thing. They were also intrigued by his ability to play point guard and shoot off the dribble, like the numbers projected. He would do that well from Michigan too, but the coaching staff wanted Alfred and those, those draft 3.0 guys wanted Alfred and Nick Staskus's his people kept telling the Kings, don't take us. Like we don't want you here or we don't want him there. And they were, Nick was even telling people throughout his whole rookie year, like I'm going to be out of here by Christmas. I'm going to get traded. Like are my agents for going to get me into a different team. So there was definitely a lot, a lot of weird stuff going on those, those days.
0: You know, to the other thing I, I think always has to with Nick and, and I, I don't, never really did see it there, to be honest, you know, just uh, forget analytics, just the eyeballs, <laughs> you know, at some point you, you kind of know, you need to know what you're looking at. Uh, but, but uh, uh, DeMarcus was just terrible to rookies. He was, a, yes. he was terrible. He, he destroyed, he was a rookie destroyer. And uh, uh, that, that has always kind of been overlooked a little bit. Is like, you know, If you're trying to build through the draft and you got a guy that that won't tolerate other rookies, in fact, is he didn't really, I always thought he was jealous of Isaiah, uh, which created a lot of issues there as well, Uh, which, so, you know, it was just a non-starter really.
1: Gary, you're confirming everything, all my reporting, you're making me feel great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, I lived it, so... (laughs) Nick told me himself that DeMarcus would like crush him with screens in practice. Whenever he would miss, he would like yell brick at his face. And I, I, I know for, a, just like you said, I mean, I remember the Rudy Gay trade that first game they won at Phoenix, I think, or they lost it. It was a close game. And Isaiah had a crazy fourth quarter and DeMarcus was pissed. He didn't talk to reporters after that game, you know, it's the first game with this big trade piece He's supposed to Rudy's supposed to be the missing piece on the perimeter. And Demarcus stormed out of the locker room not talking to reporters because he was mad Isaiah had outshined him in the fourth. So there was definitely a lot of stuff stemming from him. And I mean, the staska stuff, Jimmer for that too. Like Jimmer Oh, Jimmer. had a chance. Yeah, he just Jimmer never yeah, it was had awful. a chance. Mm-hmm. I mean, never had a chance. I don't know if he would totally right. Yeah. I don't know if he would have made it, but DeMarcus demoralized him, from what I was told. And by the time that 2014 trade deadline came around, or maybe even 2015 when they tried to trade, I think 2014, yeah, when they tried to trade Jimmer, they couldn't even get like a top 55 protected second round. They, they couldn't get anything mm-hmm. for him, and it was really because of DeMarcus. It's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, it really was. And I mean, yeah, I saw that up with Jimmer. It was terrible. And I, and I agree. I don't know if he'd have made it or not. I mean, seemed like he had enough skill that he should have been able to find the niche of some type, but, but it, that's, that waters over the, the bridge, I think, you know, but, uh, you know, I, have always said, I think Tyrese Halliburton is just a terrific young player. And I guarantee you, if, if he had came in at that time, he, he wouldn't have made it. Well, wow. He just wouldn't have, he wouldn't have made it. Uh, it just what I think would have been just too much because he's such a nice kid and that, and, and DeMarcus fed on those guys.
3: I think that's partly why Kings fans kind of, uh, and we, you know, we're fighting, I use quotes like fake fighting about, you know, all the different things that are wrong with the Kings. And I think this is part of why it's so, it's such a pretzel. Like it's so hard. You have a team that drafts poorly, but now, you know, both Jake and Jerry are sort of telling everybody that, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter who they would have drafted in some respects because DeMarcus would have, would have uh, made it difficult for them anyway. So it's, it does make it hard to uh, make that pie chart of who deserves what slice of blame for the last 15 going on 15 years now of, of no playoffs and losing.
1: Yeah. It's not just sacrament. Another thing that I talk about in the book that I think is rearing its ugly head, even more so now is when you get these guys, when you get a DeMarcus, when you get a James Harden, when you get, you know, insert any, you know, superstar here, then the clock starts ticking, right, on trying to do, especially if you're in a small market, on trying to do whatever you can to, A, placate them, make them happy, bring cop money players around them. And with DeMarcus, I mean, Jared definitely knows, you guys definitely know, he was amazing in the community, right? He was such a, you know – exemplary figure you know helping out people that's fortunate to him especially with kids and that like swung that came up left and right when I talked to people around the organization they would say well you know we can't really penalize him too much on the court or for we're yelling at a coach in practice because like look at what he does for Sacramento like he's such an ambassador for our town and our community and like that was really if that, if that was communicated to me as like a big reason why he he was allowed to get away with the stuff that he did.
0: Yeah, you know, too. I can speak.
1: I mean, I my dealings
0: with DeMar, I really liked. It. Yeah, he was delightful with yeah. me. You know, the the tough part for me was I saw the other side. Yeah, you know, I saw the other side, and it was really, uh, uh you know, very disheartening to to see that side of him. You know, from a distance, but but up close, you know, he, uh, I, I, yeah, I saw that boy. He could just be disarmed, charming, and really off the court, he was a thoughtful, nice person. Uh, uh, but it's, it's almost like a bipolar person. I mean, one, you know, or Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, but it's just too bad because, and I understand why the franchise sort of made some of the mistakes they did look at it because he was so gifted. You know, I mean, I, I always said, I thought he was more gifted than Weber, uh, you know, and I mean, obviously he had flaws that, that kept him from reaching that besides not counting the injuries, of course, but, but he was so gifted. I mean, uh, unguardable. Uh, type player uh and anyway but you know some but that's uh you know that's all part of the plan all part of the deal you know you gotta you gotta have the great talent but you gotta have the right great talent too
2: i'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, rudy gay welcoming george caro into sacramento and and hmm. telling him very famously welcome to basketball hell and I, I don't yeah. realize because there has been years I went, man. If they'd have kept Isaiah and Rudy and Demarcus, oh, uh, they, they could have they could have pushed for that for that you know lower lower playoff seat. We would have broken that playoff streak. And the more and more you guys talk, the more I'm like, no, we were in basketball hell all along,
1: and we weren't we weren't climbing out of that regardless. Well, I'll I'll tell you guys. I mean, Rudy Gay told that to a lot of people. Like <laughs> both him and Nick Stauskas told me at one point during that season. Nick was com- Nick came in the locker room one day, like a terrible shooting slump. And he turned to Rudy, like, like, I don't know what to do, man. Rudy just said to him, like, this is not a normal organization. Like you're going to be fine. You're going to, I mean, obviously he obviously wasn't, but, um, you're going to move on from here. And you're going to you know, be doing bigger and better things. Like once you get out of Sacramento, this is not, I mean, one story from the book that's just absolutely insane was that that 2015 summer, or I guess it was 2014 summer, um, before, before Malone got fired, I mean, there's already rumors starting that George Carl was, you know, going to be the next guy and Malone was on the hot seat. And I remember um, Chris Gent was an assistant coach with the Kings during that time. He was like one of Malone's trusted guys. Um, he told me they were at, at Summer League in Vegas and Malone said to him, like, we need to win Summer League so I can like get them off my back. And Jent was like, what are you talking about? Like, no one cares about summer league. Summer league's like an exhibition, young guys playing. Like, we all wear polos. I'm mean, obviously going to do that now. But, like, it's not – this isn't a big deal. What are you talking about? He's like, there's real pressure on me here. Like, this is not good. And a bunch of uh, Malone's coaching staff went to dinner – or went to lunch on the Vegas Strip one day. And, you know, there's thousands of restaurants on the Vegas Strip, right? Right. So they're walking out of, I think it was called La Pescheria in one of those hotels. They're walking out. And as they're walking out, in walks, Vivek Ranadive, Chris Mullen, and George Carl. Like, in July, well before Malone got fired in December. And I talked I talk, I talk to George on, on the record for the book. He swears they were not, um, it was not a job interview. But, like, they definitely were, like, getting to know each other potentially for a job interview later on, but they didn't talk about the job. They were just talking about, um, you know, basketball philosophy and getting to know each other. George told me he thought it was Vivek kind of sussing him out to see how George would respond to all of Vivek's ideas. Cause obviously, you know, the four on three and all the other stuff, whenever he would pitch something to the coaching staff, they'd be like, what are you talking about, man? So that happened in like July, flash forward to December Mullen obviously gets fired, but they were, I mean, that was a wild, wild circumstance. The fact that they even walked into the same exact restaurant, they could have gone to any other restaurant, let alone meet with George Carl. It was, it's pretty nuts.
0: Well, you do know, I mean, Jake, I'm sure you're aware that so much of was, and I knew this just from talking to Molly and Pete DeLessandro and, and hearing them visit it right next to the broadcast area that we did, but I talked to them every, every day and, and it was about style of play. It was about Mm -hmm. they they always believed that the Kings were would be a great running team with DeMarcus Cousins. I don't know if they actually had eyes and watched DeMarcus run, but uh, I, you know, which he didn't want to play that way because he knew in the half court he'd get the ball all the time. You know, Mitch Richmond was the same way, Uh, you know, they they. They got it, uh, you know, no, I don't blame DeMarcus, but, but I mean, but Malone, I mean, he was coaching his team as best he could, utilizing, you know, as we've talked about, don't think two things you can do as a coach is, is motivating them and utilize them as best you can, and he was doing that, And but they really felt that, boy, this team would just be great in a wide open running game, and I think that goes back to the fascination with George.
1: Yeah, and he wanted he wanted to kind of make this Golden State ripoff, right? Like he had been part of that Warriors ownership group. And if you remember that year before, George's Denver team was the one that lost to the Warriors in that first round. So George knew up in person, and, and Denver was always fast. So George knew as well as anybody, like this Warriors team is something that, that we're going to have to deal with coming up here. And Vivek would always give these random, I think, You know, I I think they're random Um, benchmarks, I guess, like that next season, he wanted them to play at um, a pace and have an offensive rating that was equal to the Clippers, which is the team that beat the Warriors that year. Like he wanted them to be, uh, I forget what the number was, but at 110 or something offensive rating, like that was the goal. He he gave that to the coaching staff for that 2014-15 year and said, "We, we need this offensive rating. But obviously they gave up Isaiah, like the fastest punk guard in the league. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, it is counterintuitive things. And then the year after, um, um, when they when they had George, Vivek gave this notion, well, we, we I need you to win 50 games this year. That was the whole thing for 1516. We need to win 50 games. And that team had just won 20 and 17 and 20. It was impossible to win 50 games. George goes to the um to the whiteboard in this meeting, like Vivek was there, um, Vlade was there. I think Mike Bratz was still around at that time. Peja was in the room, all the assistant coaches. And they have their roster listed with their point guards and their wings and their bigs. And George is just crossing off names that he thinks are actually – are leaving players left that are actually capable of being part of a 50-win team, in George's opinion. So there's only like five <laughs> names left. Surprised he got So five. from Jordan. <laughs> yeah. George's perspective, you know, that Denver team that lost to Golden State, but they were the three seed, they were good because they traded Carmelo and got all these pieces back. And they had this deep roster of like 10, 11 guys. So in that meeting is when George suggested, maybe we think about trading DeMarcus and see if we can get back for him. And he called like the Lakers maybe because he heard they were kind of interested in him. That was that 2015, yeah, 2015 draft. The Lakers had a high pick that year. Um, when they took uh, Daniel Russell number two um, so they was like trying to th- think about number two for DeMarcus type stuff and that's when the rumors came that the Kings were trying to shop DeMarcus and DeMarcus got mad and the snake and the grass stuff, it all came from that meeting it started with Vex saying we need 50 wins, which is just like a random number that he threw out there that's a good number
3: <laughs> I mean, I'd love to win 50 games That'd 133 that year, I mean they yeah, fell a little yeah.
0: short yeah, yeah is
2: there a, I mean, obviously, um, how does that square with, too, that uh, that at one point there was rumors that uh, Vivek wanted Chris Mullins to take over. Once they fired Mike Malone, there was some statue about, like, oh, we, I want to get Mullins in there. And then Mullins kind of backed out, or he seemed to all of a sudden not not be interested in that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if that was in the chapter I sent you guys, but at, there was definitely a sentiment around the organization that once Mullins said no, he kind of started getting pushed out. And he lost his favor. and He lost his ear to Vivek and he wasn't really around anymore. And or, people in the organization were like wondering where he went, kind of like fans of a TV show, wondering if their star, if their, if their favorite uh, character got killed off. Like he literally was like around one of the top two guys, three guys. He, he was asked to be the head coach. He said no. And then he was pretty much out. Like it was definitely like a light switch. He was right there one day. He was asked to be the coach. He said no, and he lost all of his favor with Pranadeep. That, that's how it's been communicated to me.
2: Vivek at one point posted pictures of them on Twitter. They were going on a road trip, and it was Pete Alessandro and Chris Mullins and Vivek in a minivan, like, oh, look at us, we're all friends. And then after after this thing with uh, Mike Malone, he, he was basically, it was silent, and he went off to, I think, St. John's. He ended up ca- uh, coaching in the college, but he was no longer – a part of the team out of nowhere where he'd only ever been an advisor anyways. It's just kind of a mysterious uh, circumstance there that I wondered, uh, that I wondered about there.
1: Yeah. Mullen was definitely brought in from the onset as a, like the advisor, like you talked about I mean, that run DMC team, right? Like we talked about as the Warriors connections, like Mitch, Richman was in those rooms too. Obviously he was a Kings player back in the day, but like, you know, those connections. And I mean, George was brought in, I think primarily too, because of those connections with, I mean, Pete, Pete was a St. John's guy as well. Um, I think George coached Mullen at some point in the pros. I think I could be wrong. Um, so there was there was a lot. And that's how the NBA works too. Like look at Minnesota. You know, Gerson Rosas brings in Chris Finch because they're close from their days in Houston. Chris is Gerson shot to be an executive. He wants to bring in the guy that he thinks is the best guy that he can trust and is available. That's how the NBA operates. But – the Kings definitely, I think, cut corners on a lot of those things. I mean, bringing on Vlade when they did. They brought on Vlade, everyone might might not forget, before Pete left. Like, Vlade was around yeah, yeah. and getting more and more power. And, like, I remember someone told me he went on a road trip, like, pretty early on. Like, it was one of those, like, six-game East Coast road trips that a lot of Western Conference teams do. And Vivek just said, like, I want you on that trip just to relate to DeMarcus. Just, like – tell him you're there for him, like build a friendship with him. And DeMarcus basically said to him, like, can I curse on this? Yeah, yes, yeah. please. Go ahead. He's like, what the fuck can you help me for? Like <laughs> you haven't played him 20 years. Like, yeah. And at that certain point, when Vlade was the number one decision maker in that franchise, Peja was number two. And they were the two guys who had the least experience running basketball operations of anybody in the organization. So it's definitely uh, curious to say the least. Was there any sense, Jake,
2: um, that when Vivek when Vivek step, first stepped into the uh, the ownership of the Kings, he used to say that there was a secret sauce that they were going to mm-hmm. apply to everything that they had a secret formula or they had a secret thing that they were going to do that was going to really give the Kings the edge? in In any of your talks with with any executive or coach or player with the Kings, was there? Ever any evidence of any sort of secret sauce other than Vivek going, hey, what about four on five? Was it just from the the makings of his own head? Or did you hear something about what their strategy was on the lowdown that they didn't want to share with anybody else?
1: I'm watching Billions right now. I don't know if you guys have seen that. And this is... yeah, like Love it. Potentially a spoiler for some people, but it was the first season that happened years ago, so I don't care. I just watched the episode where... Um, Axe messes up on a on a uh, on a big sale. They lose like a million dollar, a billion dollars in one day because he's saying, "I'm the difference maker. I'm the reason why it's going to be successful." That was the secret sauce. There was no, there was nothing besides the deck thinking. <laughs> I've learned what Golden State can do. I've seen the NBA. I'm a smart guy, and we've seen this a lot around the NBA to lesser degrees. But as this new money has come into these ownership groups and these tech moguls have, you know, ballooned their, their, their personal worths and they by these teams, they just think that they can do it in basketball too. And not many of them can't like not many of them have the best teams are the ones where owners are more hands off and they fully empower their front office. I and mean, that's what happened in Philly, right? Like, Billy fell short, or Sam Hinkie fell short of his time period in Philadelphia because ownership started getting pressure from the league, from other owners, to make a change, and that's why I think Sam's no longer in the league and probably won't be ever again. It's very, very, very fickle and very rare to have a situation like Boston with Danny Ainge, or um, Miami with you know that front office built from Pat Riley. Like it's very, very rare to have a front office and a basketball operations feel like they have full carte blanche. Everything has to get approved by the owner, but it's rare to feel like you have the ability to operate as you see fit and just bring things for approval. Vivek is very, very, very involved. I think he still is. I, I don't really know as much um, about the, the day-to-day operations. I, I know he was very involved in helping flush out Monty McNair's front office underneath Monty, which just goes to show, I mean... The whole Dave Yeager, Brandon Williams situation that happened after, you know, the book kind of ends in 2016, but that's mentioned in the epilogue. He's always meddling. And I think the secret sauce was his thought process that I am the guy. I'm this successful guy. I've been in Golden State. I've done it in the tech world. I'm going to come in and build this team into a winner.
0: Well, I, I just a couple of thoughts there, you know, on the uh, Sam hinkey thing. I do want to say I've always and I'm not a Hickey fan, by the way, because I think it might have taken 85 years at that rate. But but uh, but I I've always thought if, if Hinky had just not traded mm-hmm. Drew Holiday for the rights to Nerland's knoll, he might have made it. You know, he traded he traded an all star that they still could use, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, which was a, a really a, a no reason to do it, really. Yeah. And clearly an New Orleans, not the answer to anything, uh, but, uh, anyway, that's just a thought there. And, and, you know, I, I always go say, I yeah. kind of, when I think of, you know, not just the Kings, but every bad, bad basketball franchise, uh, which are, are a lot, you know, it's kind of like the old Yogi bearer saying, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. And, uh, and I, and I think that's, that's what we have, you know, is it, uh, uh, those franchises seems that have success really do uh, hire good basketball people and let them do their jobs, uh, have patience, you know, patience, because everybody messes up. You know, I don't mean if your name's Pat Riley or Jerry West or whoever, you, the history uh, proves that, that they will make a bad draft or a bad trade, but overall, they'll do well overall uh, Danny Ainge they'll do well because they are basketball people they know what they're doing and if you leave them alone they'll probably you know they'll get it right and I think uh, that to me that's you can have all you can have a box full of analytic people but uh, some of them couldn't tell you a switch from a zone so uh, at some point you you have to have somebody with eyeballs that know what they're looking at
1: Yeah. in, in defense of Sam. I, I think trading drew was more complicated than just removing drew holiday. When, when he, when, when Hinkey took over Philadelphia, they were very, very asset strapped. They had very little draft pick compensation you know, of their own and forward. They had nothing coming in. They like, they traded, I think it was 2012 draft They traded up to draft Arnett Moultrie, who I'm not sure you guys even know who he is. Like barely played in the league. <laughs> Um, It's from Mississippi state. Um, So like Sam did a lot of things in the beginning of his tenure to recoup assets, to make sure that they had, you know, a lot of chances at the dartboard. And like Jerry mentioned, making mistakes that was part of their plan at the beginning. They never professed like we're going to have a perfect draft record. We're not going to draft, you know, like the thunder three straight MVPs and just make this thing work and turn around in a minute. He wanted to have as many darts at the dartboard as possible. So you look at Drew at the time, he was an all-star, but there was definitely sentiment that that was a down Eastern Conference. He probably made it because someone had to make it. And obviously, he got traded to the Western Conference, which has always been deeper. And you guys are going to see this for the next couple of years with De'Aaron. Mike Conley had the same exact issue, obviously. Very hard to be to become an all-star in the West. But Drew never got back to that game again. He's still very, very good. You're right. Still will be a great player. But they got two first-round picks in addition to New Orleans. Uh, or they got another first-round pick in addition to New Orleans, which is where they took Dario Saric. Um, so that was part of the calculus behind that too. And also I think um, to what you, you were saying earlier about, you know, how many years he would have needed, I don't think they went into that second draft expecting to get Joel Embiid and, and expecting to get a player who was hurt and also Dario Sarch wasn't going to come over for a while. I don't think that was their plan. Like Brett Brown has told me, he said it in the media a lot, he was anticipating getting Andrew Wiggins and your guys' guy, Nick Staskis. The Sixers were talking to the Kings about trading up at eight to get Nick. Um, it didn't happen. Um, and, and the Kings also traded talked about trading up to three to get Joel Embiid. Pete D'Alessandro definitely was willing to take that risk and take Embiid at three. Um, so I think there was a lot of things that were circumstantial that led to them kind of punting year after year and taking these injured guys. But to Hinkie's credit, right, Embiid was the guy at three. He's theoretically the MVP this year if he doesn't miss 18 games already. And they're the number one seed in the Eastern Conference and probably, you know, just as just as, just as likely a contender as any team. So the, the, the calculus, I think, rings true to this day.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't believe that, that they would have uh, went forward had they not started getting veterans and some free agents if it just stayed on the draft, draft, draft. I don't yeah. believe that. And I think that if, whether you like Brian Colangelo or not, he was a professional that brought in some actual – Bas- proven basketball players to go with the young guys, and, yeah. and and then they started to win.
1: Yeah, their plan was always to to build to that 2016 free agency class, which Santa didn't get to do. Um, and I wrote about it in the book, they weren't going to get Kevin Durant that year, but they were they were starting to hire. I mean, a lot of teams do this, but they were starting to hire people who have connections to stars. Like they hired, um, um, Billy Lange was a Villanova assistant who's now a head coach, I think at Penn, maybe I'm blanking, but he had a big connection to Kyle Lowry, who was coming up and they hired Chris Babcock from San Antonio with Brett Brown, who had a connection through Texas to Kevin Durant and Lloyd Pierce had a connection to LeBron and they brought in a strength and conditioning guy, Todd Wright, who was a Texas connection to Dick KD. 2016 was always going to be what they were building towards starting to actually sign some people and Sam never really had the opportunity.
2: I'm I'm curious now uh, because uh, it seems to me like there aren't many of these tanking general managers left. You know, <laughs> we we You're go correct. through this era where and see Jake. Uh, un, unlike Jerry, uh, I, I'm more I'm more lean towards you. Um, I wrote I wrote articles for the uh, for uh, for the King's Herald about hiring uh, Sam Hinkie as as a potential general manager. I, I ran through his entire manifesto. <laughs> it's something that I've read a hundred times. Um, probably
1: 97 times too many. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. There's a lot there, but, but it is one of those things that, um, there aren't many left to Jerry's credit. Uh, the more traditional general manager is the one that seems like the NBA corrected or course corrected back to no, 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 no. We've made a lot of odds changes. Um, they've, they've implemented a play-in game the last two years that have kind of attempted to hamper a little bit of the tanking where now all you got to do is get to 10 to have a chance. So there's teams like the wizards that where they really should have bottomed out as soon as, you know, things started going awry, they could have just gone, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take the hit the season and try to build through Denia Vija or whatever. But Mm -hmm. the point of it is, is do you think these, these rule changes have helped curb tanking? And, and do you think there is uh, a place in this league still for a tank, whether it's a mini tank or whether, you know, like a one season turnaround or where do you see the 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 future of that going?
1: I mean, we're seeing it right now. Detroit and Orlando and OKC and Houston. I mean Minnesota is not doing it intentionally. Um, but I think as as we get down the stretch run, we might see, you know, Carlton Town just start resting some games here and there, you know. I mean, Al Horford is just not playing in the second half of the season. This is the second Shea Gildas Alexander got hurt. I mean, I I'm not going to be out here um, speculating whether the severity of that injury really is that bad, but like, I doubt he, I think if they were competing for the playoffs and they wanted to be competing for the playoffs, I think Shea Gilders-Alexander will be back on the court this year. So this 2021 draft class is considered, you know, to be the best from since that 2014 year, maybe, and hopefully for these teams that are tanking, it it will be better than 2014 um, because a lot of those guys, Wiggins, Jabari, you know, Aaron Gordon's now like a big complimentary piece in Denver, but he was never, you know, a franchise changing guy. Marcus Smart's been, you know, a linchpin in Boston, but he's not like the fit, the face there either. So hopefully it's worth it, but we're seeing teams do it. Obviously the odds make it more difficult. Like if the if the lottery odds didn't change, maybe Zion Williamson's a New York Knick right now. Like obviously that um, quote just popped up last night, but that was the first year that the 2019 draft was the first year that the new lottery odds were, were exacted. And we, it immediately changed everything. Like the Pelicans jumped from, jumped to one from six because they had higher odds. Same with Memphis from seven to two. And, you know, now there's a fourth drawing. The Lakers were nine that year. And they were tanking too. Like the Pelicans and the Lakers at the end of 2018, 19, both sat LeBron and Anthony Davis to get better odds. If there, if there was no lottery reform, the Lakers would have been at nine. Instead, they jumped to four and they used that pick to trade for Anthony Davis. So true. I think it's still in vogue. I think teams are going to be tanking if they have an opportunity at it. Um, and because these guys are just so valuable. Like, look at what happens to the Pelicans when they get Zion, look at what happens when Memphis gets John Morant and Jaron Jackson. The rewards are definitely there, especially for the small market teams as we're seeing more and more players even now continue to leave those teams to go to New York and go to uh, Chicago – which just got traded there, but, you know, to Golden State or Brooklyn or L.A., whatever. The more that that happens too, I think we're going to see teams doubling down potentially as well.
0: But, you know, you – but, yeah, I think you – I mean, you make great points and I couldn't agree more. And I, I don't totally disagree with Will, to be honest with you. I think there makes a lot of sense at some we point. We like we to fight a lot. We, 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 Well, I mean, no, I mean, if you, but it, but, I always go back to the thing, it, just like Jake pointed out, it is a lottery. Uh, so, Absolutely. so make, you know, there is no sure thing that you get the third pick. Uh, we're third worst record. We get the third pick. Well, it, it just isn't, it, it hasn't ever worked out that way in the last several years and unlikely. So now will the Kings, can the Kings get the third pick this year? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a more of a lottery all the time. And, and, and I do agree for small market teams, your best chance is to build through the draft, to get stars through the draft. A free agency is less of an option. It's still an option, but much less of an option. So, uh, sure that's uh makes perfect sense but like say I just think like Jack pointed out I mean it's like geez yeah I remember the Kings having the worst record and got the fourth pick you yeah, know sure. uh I mean so you know that's that that's the history of the lottery in recent times and and will be more so and and then then you add to the fact that as as Jake pointed out I I can't disagree it, it this might be the greatest drafts and sliced bread it also could be you know, uh, the next one for three guys that are sure things aren't, uh, you know, we also know that to be a fact. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's always a, a Stro Mile Swift and a Derek Williams and a Jay Williams. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, guys in there uh, that they can't miss, but miss.
1: And, that, and that's why I think there was a book to write here. Like we talked so much about the Marcus and, and how he, you know, created an environment that wasn't, complimentary or you know positive for those types of players like Philly had their own issues with New first and then Joel and B but their injuries um, Orlando never really I mean Orlando just rebuilt from the rebuild that I wrote about you know that
0: happened mm. six years ago yeah so
1: it, it, once you get those guys even if they are and maybe they're not busts because of you know their talent maybe you just don't do enough to maximize those guys and it's your own fault It's a really precarious thing, not just to tank to get a 19 year old guy. Then you have a a 19 year old that your whole franchise, a $2 billion organization is built around developing and coddling and growing these teenagers. It's a really difficult, that in itself, I think is the part of this whole equation that gets overlooked all the time. It's really, really challenging to do that in an effective way that like Jerry alluded to earlier, you can start doing that and, and and slowly building towards actually winning games. Like there's one thing to bring these guys in and welcome them and you know put them into an environment like Michael Carter Williams was in, or like Tyreek Evans was in back in the day, where you put off all these big numbers, but it actually doesn't actually matter. Like your numbers don't actually affect winning. It's a whole nother thing to then push that team into a into a winning culture and to actually you know play defense. Every coach says, all the time, the hardest thing to teach a young player is defense, not offense. These guys can score with their eyes closed, so that is a another factor into this whole equation that I think completely gets overlooked by a lot of people all the time. And I think it gets overlooked by the people who tank the year to then draft. The, once they get that guy, they don't really realize half the time. All right, here's now we're 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 just starting this. Like we're not even close to the top of the mountain. Yet. Yeah, and, and you know
0: I always point out too. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, Kings are a pretty good example of this. You know, every team has a leading scorer, every losing team <laughs> and leading rebounder and all. And the trick is to decide now, you know, which ones can help you actually win, you know, can also be a leading scorer or a second leading scorer on a, on a winner. And I, I think, you know, as you pointed out about the George Carl thing, you know, what you're looking for is, OK, how many guys can play on a 50 win team and, and really how quickly you decide, you know, on your draft picks, uh, you know, to where, okay, we we can't wait 10 years, Uh, you know, and you probably have a better understanding of this than me, but I've told these guys, I I always said, I think probably 80% of the players that are drafted need to be traded. They simply, I mean, they need to for their own benefits. You know, they're not good enough uh, to be the guy that, you know, the Jordans or the Birds or the or the Magics or the LeBrons or the Wades. I mean, they're just not good enough. And yeah. so they fall out of favor and they need to be somewhere else to where they can be judged differently. And I, yeah. I always remember Reggie Theus telling me that. He said, you know, once I was traded by the Bulls, then I was viewed differently from that point on because I wasn't their lottery pick. Uh, then I had to, you know, and I thought that was an excellent point.
1: Yeah, a lot of executives call that the second draft. Yeah. You know, like Aaron Gordon was a second draft type guy with Denver, for example. Um, and, and, and Denver is a perfect example, too. There a lot of franchises, they draft a guy and they have an opinion of him and they want to hold on to them so badly because, like, I believe in this guy. I believe in, this. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have your own pet favorite prospects you had over the years, too, that you're watching on some other team that you're like, see, I told you, Daquan Jeffries, man, like he would have been a guy. You <laughs> do that too. Like they really – a lot It's a lot of times it's hard for it – even a second-round pick, it's hard for a team to cut bait with someone that they really believed in. And then especially, especially, Jerry, if you watch that guy then go do well somewhere else, it's like, see, I told you he could have been this. But the truth is he couldn't have been that where he was.
3: You guys are describing the Marvin Bagley situation pretty perfectly where the King, I feel like the Kings are right there right now where they are making that decision. You know, how much do we build around this guy when we have Rashawn Holmes, another big who uses the paint and does it, you know, quite efficiently versus trading him and watching the very real uh, possibility that he does well somewhere else and makes you look even worse than you did for picking him over a guy like Luca. But, but, you know, I'd ask,
0: I'd ask Jake this question, you know, I, I mean, because I know you studied it a lot. And it, it, I mean, it, it does, uh, you know, with, with so many players or franchises, it seems like the winning franchises, I've always thought it was a key. And, and you know, is to, to make those judgments quicker, realize your mistakes quicker and move on. And I think it seems like the really good franchises do that. They all make mistakes, but they're quicker, quicker to recognize them, cut their losses, move on. And whether, you know, and and invariably that leads to the thing is like, well, to do that, you have to have everybody on board. You know, it's it's the old Jack McCloskey thing. The great general manager of Detroit used to tell me, he said, you know, until, until you have a complete team off the floor, you'll never have one on the floor. And, and, I, and, I, and I really believe that is true. And, and that, to me, that's kind of where it shows up a little bit is when uh, you know, it's like, okay, uh, this draft pick didn't work for us. Doesn't mean it won't work for somebody else, but we've got to move on and, and, and make the best of what we can do.
1: Yeah. If you track the pick that they got from Michael Carter-Williams, it didn't really net too much in return, but that's what Philly did with him, right? He won Rookie of the yeah. Year. And yeah. after that an front office, I had an assistant coach tell me that when, when they would go into rebound for their player, and every, every, every team has their development staff and their assistants, they all have their guys, right? Like one coach has two, three players who they, they warm <laughs> yeah. up pregame, game, whatever. Everyone, not everyone, a couple people told me rebounding for Michael Carter Williams was a problem. Like you never know where that ball like most guys either miss long or short. Good shooters miss long or short. That's just miss long, short, left, right, right. left. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. no one
1: wanted a rebound for him. So that was part. I mean, they knew they knew early on And they gave up I mean, he's had a great career, like all things considered, 10-year career now, probably he's heading towards has made a bunch of millions of dollars. Defensive, you know, rotation piece. Um, but he wasn't the franchise guy. And they got killed. I killed them for trading him at the time. But they knew. And they they'd sold, they sold him at the peak of their value. But on the flip side, they didn't trade Jalil Okafor at the peak of his value. They didn't move on from New Orleans at the peak of his value. So you're right. It, it, it's, it's a hot and cold situation. And, and everyone's guilty of both sides of it. I just wanted to bring up a specific
2: uh, person that uh, the Lakers drafted and who's now uh, playing in the same city as Jason, uh New York. Uh, Julius Randall. Julius Randall was somebody that they moved on from, and and he ended up uh, in a contract situation where he was making $9 million a year for two years because that's all somebody would give him. And now he's somebody who's the best player on the Knicks right now Mm -hmm. on a, on a team where he's the MVP of, of of especially their team, but he should at least be in a top five to seven conversation for the entire league at some point. And that's somebody that got moved on quick who took a little while to, to jump in as well.
0: Yeah. And, and every team in the league had a chance to get him, Uh, but you know, he wasn't ready then to either, you know, it's like, I always call that my Doug Christie rule. Uh, I always remember, and I've told you guys this story, I think, uh, but, you know, I always remember talking to Jerry West uh, the year they had Doug as a rookie or, or whatever, and because I'd been intrigued by him as a in college. And he said, "Yeah," I said, "Doug's going to be a hell of a player someday. He won't be here because he still thinks he's Magic Johnson." But uh, <laughs> you know, two, he said, two or three teams, or something like that." He said, "But two or three teams, he's going to figure it out and be a really good player." And and I, and I think that was it in a nutshell. It's just that simple sometimes, guys aren't near as good as they think they are. And then that'll happen in this draft too. That'll happen in this, un you know, surefire thing draft, that some of these guys aren't as good as they think they are and will need more patience and, a, you know, a little come to Jesus talk down in.
1: Yeah, I, I cover the Lakers a lot in the book as well, because just like the Kings, they were not trying to be bad. Those were the 2013 to 2016 time period. Those are the last three years of Kobe's career. They were doing everything they could to try and get LeBron and Carmelo in 2014 and free agency to join him. To try to get LaMarcus Alder in 2015, and they're the they're like as much as the Kings were the example of a team that didn't get poor enough. The the, the Lakers were an example. I mean, they were never going to trade Kobe, but they were trying to act like Kobe was still Kobe, even though he was 37 and his body was breaking down. So while the Celtics were battling them ten year, or four years earlier in the finals, move on from KG and Paul Pierce, the Lakers are still trying to hold on to Kobe. They're still so bad. They're getting guys like Randall and D'Angelo Russell. But that last that, – that, like Randall's whole first full year, because he got hurt his f- first season, D'Angelo Russell's first full year, it wasn't about developing those guys. It was about Kobe's retirement tour. So then they're just, just like not, – not to the same degree with Staskus and Jimmer, but just like how they didn't really have an opportunity because there was a star in their way and a star cloud in the environment, the Lakers never really got to grow those young guys really too well because Kobe was sucking up so much oxygen in that facility. It's,
2: that's, a curious, that's a curious case too, Jake, because uh, like you were saying, like uh, uh, not unlike DeMarcus Cousins, you mentioned in your book that there were practices where Kobe would be screaming at him while he was getting worked on, you know, that they're soft as Charmin. And you've got him challenging Swaggy P and you've got various players having to cower under the weight of the shadow of Kobe Bryant.
1: And yeah, I've got the full, the full softest Charmin uh, story in the book. Yeah. Cool. Well, anybody,
0: anybody challenges Swaggy P is a, a hero at all <laughs> levels. Uh, you,
2: Jerry Reynolds calls Kobe Bryant hero. That's going to be the head.
0: Uh, well, <laughs> well <laughs> as a, anything relating to, calling out swaggy p i'm in favor of <laughs> uh so so jake
2: give us a rundown on on uh, obviously this is a king-centric podcast so i want i want your uh, your breakdown on where you see the kings are now only because we talk about it every single week we're we're in the forest yeah. and i'd like you to talk about the trees a little bit and where you see the kings are and where you think you personally as jake fisher gm of the kings would take this team <laughs> having a De'Aaron fox Having a, having a Tyrese Halberton, having a Marvin Bagley, who's a question mark. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, talk about the GM of the team. I, I, I'm a believer in Monty McNair. I know there's been some skepticism now about this Rockets, you know, tree from Daryl being that Gerson's kind of struggling in Minnesota and the Rockets kind of, you know, botched the James Harden trade situation, I think, objectively speaking. I think they did. I think they could have done better. Um, and obviously, you know, the Kings kept falling short this season of what their expectations were um being you know they were kind of a plucky upstart last year but but to start with Darren and Tyrese is pretty fantastic and you know talking about analytics and efficiencies and whatever you know building off of this team right now while Tyrese still has three years of his rookie deal remaining after this one is a big you know chip this team has uh to move forward with um and I I love Tyrese I, I I think I was saying to a lot of people, I, I stuck my reputation on the line and said that the Warriors should have taken him number two before the draft even started. I was a big, big fan of him. And Taylor Horton Tucker is blowing up with the Lakers right now. People forget that those guys were two freshmen together um, two, two seasons before. Um, and then Talen left one and done. He was hurt. He fell to 50 or whatever. The Lakers only took him because of the clutch connection, to be honest. They got kind of lucky. And Tyrese got hurt his his sophomore year. That's why he fell all the way. He never, if he played that whole year, he would have been a top five pick regardless. Um, so I, I think to have those two guys, it's it's an amazing starting point. And maybe you will get lottery luck this year and add a third piece to that, to that mix, and you'll have a second guy on his rookie deal to really, you know, prop up your salary books and bring in somebody else. I mean, it's gonna be pricey soon because Rashawn. Is potentially going to be getting a $20 million average annual salary deal this summer. There are teams that are going to be out there. Charlotte, I know, was was floating around and trying to trade for him potentially for the deadline. They were talking to Indiana for Miles Turner and looking other places too. But they're going to come calling. And I know Rashawn's people think he's going to get 80 million over four years, maybe even more. Um, so that all of a sudden, you know, maybe this does become an expensive roster pretty soon, which is why. Tanking does become an issue as well in certain situations because you have to pay a lot of guys before you win anything. So De'Aaron, I think, has proven. I mean, there's no bigger fans of De'Aaron Fox outside of you know Northern California. Um, but I, I, I'm still I'm still wondering how well he'll become in terms of, uh, of of a shooter and and how he'll actually be a threat. I mean there's one thing to put up 40 point games when your team isn't really competing for too, too much. Right. Um, So I'm curious to see what he does in a team that has a bigger scattering report and has a bigger target on their back, but to have those two guys to have Rashawn, I think Bagley's situation is done there. I don't think he'll be around long-term. I think this is his last year in Sacramento, no matter how that shapes out Um, from from talking to people around the situation. I just, I don't think he wants to be there at all. Um, I don't think they want him to be there anymore. Um, but this off season, what they do in the draft will be interesting. I think it'll show what their plans are moving forward definitively. If they do pay up for Rashawn, you know, that, that'll be the core. And it's, it's, it's one that I'm bullish on to start with. It's just to wrap this up. The pieces that have to come into play next are the ones that are the hard part. You know, they've gotten, they've got these two guys. Now it's about maximizing them. And that's the challenge.
2: Jerry, I want to give you a, I want to give you last word on this only because you're our resident expert. You're our general manager coach and everything else in the world. (laughs) I I want to give you the opportunity to be a commissioner of the NBA. And I want you to stop me and Jake and Tony from being able to uh, collectively tank our franchises. Are there, are there any rules that you think when you sit down on a daily basis and you're looking at the standings where you go, gosh, if I do this, this would really, uh, this would really help kind of mitigate uh, teams that really 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 want to be bad is there anything that you see there and if so i mean because i know the jerry reynolds rule in terms of three-point shooting now we have reynolds rules for for the for the x's and o's part now i need a jerry reynolds rule for the uh, grander nba
0: great uh, it's about time you asked me because i can solve these problems <laughs> but uh but i see but jake doesn't know my three-point rule thing but uh yeah jake here's the deal they got to eliminate the corner three it's it's really hurting the game, and uh, you know yeah. it, it's a point where it's it's not a skill shot, uh, to, and they limit, and you still have thirty threes taken every game, but they got eliminate the. Comp- not
1: to interrupt you, but you want the break to just go to the out of bounds line.
0: Yeah, just go to the you'll go of the sideline, just with the yeah. arch, and then awesome. because uh, you know, and in my mind is it it it'll make a game better for the fans for low post play, which is really a big players have been, you know, unfairly treated, uh, so that and and then my other rule is move the guys like on the college game move them back uh one spot on the lane on free throws to get away from the wrestling and because if, if you miss free throws you shouldn't get the damn ball back that's that's uh, uh okay now as far as the lottery you know actually i i like what they've done to me it's enough it's enough i mean don't get me wrong i mean teams you know, it's like uh, Jake rightly pointed out. I mean, Oklahoma City's doing what they're doing. It's, it's clear. And, and so you're going to have a lot of teams, several teams, you know, at the bottom. And, and But it's still not a sure thing. And that's the best you can hope for. You want the worst teams to have opportunities at good players. And, and as we know, some of the greatest players are late picks. I mean, last time I looked, uh, Jokic is pretty good. He was a second rounder. And uh, Dada Kumpo, 16. And Donovan Mitchell, you know, Utah built on Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, 27. So, uh, so I, yeah, I think it, I think they've done fine there. I mean, you know, it, it, it got, it get, you know, to me, it, it always got away from, I understand if you're totally understand tanking for Kareem Abdul Jabbar. But of uh, <laughs> Abdul Jabbar is not walking through that door, fellas, <laughs> in this in this draft either. And so, yeah. and so, but yeah, it's fair. And, and you know, the Kings, if uh, they're going to have a chance at the first pick, and if they get the first pick, they get Cade Cunningham, and they'll be a lot better next year.
1: Yeah,
0: that's that's really all, all I can say. Now, will they get? him? Of course not. But or of course not. They could though. They could. You know, we know that.
1: My, my one quick thought is that as long as the order, there is a lottery, obviously, but as long as the draft order is partially determined by record, there will be tanking. And I think the only way to really do that are two things that have been kicked around by the league office. It's to have all the teams not in the playoffs be in a tournament that awards the number one pick, um, which would you know put all these bad teams like Orlando, Houston, whatever. They'd put the, and those young guys Jerry Lake had mentioned. You know, if all of a sudden the flip switch, the switch flips, excuse me, and all those young guys are now in a playoff environment competing for the number one pick, they'd be having to win games. The other situation would be the wheel that Mike Zarin and Boston has pitched over and over again that I don't think will ever happen, um, but where you would teams into buckets of five or six depending on what you want to do and each bucket has their own uh, spin of the wheel so you you would have a lottery for one to five and five to ten or six to ten and eleven to fifteen and so on but it would rotate so you'd be in the one through 5 let let's say this year and then the year after that you'd be in 20 through 25 and it would rotate to kind of even out that way everyone has a fair shake of it but i think what a lot of people told me is this is what the league has done. This new uh, reform that they passed in 2017 that we have now, and they're going to stick by it for a while until they have a reason to change it again.
0: Yeah. I thought um, to me, it's, uh, I don't know, whatever you do, there's going to be some unfairness somewhere or another. And, and like I say to me, uh, you know, that gives, if you don't make the playoffs uh, you have a, sh- a shot at a, a good lottery pick. You have, you may not get it, but it's also true. You know, that, as you pointed out, I mean, Tyrese Halliburton probably should have been a second or third pick, but he was, he was available at 12. And, and, and the same thing will happen. It happened every year, every year. Uh, you know, it, it just, it, you don't, that's the thing. And, you know, the, the teams have got to draft better. Uh, you know, I, was, I always go back to the year that, that Jerry West was viewed as, which he is a genius uh, uh, for drafting Nick Van Exel at 37. And I said, yeah, but he took, George Lynch at eight. If he knew that Nick was that damn good, he had taken him at eight. Not to take a chance on, on missing him at thirty seven. So that's uh, you know that's a reality of this stuff. But uh, no, I, I I'm I think the I think the league's doing best they can. I think the league's doing the best they can, and and teams that uh, you know uh, players will always try to win. And Jake knows this. I mean, the players themselves. There's no advantage in losing. So. If if you're not playing an yeah. Al Horford, the guy that takes his place is gonna bust his hump. Now he may not be able to do as well. Mm-hmm. And uh Shea Gilgas Alexander, yeah, you know that that's how franchises tank is take their best play, find reasons to not play the best players. Uh the players that play, you you know, you, you know, Harrison Barnes is gonna play and try to win. And and Aaron Fox is gonna play and try to win. So so you know, and and to do otherwise, if you were a fan, you'd I'd be totally insulted. Uh, But but I I understand what that's the only way a franchise can do it is just, you know, basically look for reasons not to play key guys.
2: (laughs) I think there's uh, some some real potential for uh, unintended comedy if there's a if there's a tournament to to decide the number one pick when the Kings go they hey we want to win we want to win the rights to Cade Cunningham and then Harrison Barnes start kicking the ball out of bounds because he knows his eventual replacement is is there at the <laughs> number one pick.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, it, players want to win so bad that they get a replacement player coming in for them. Okay, so um, so this is Jake Fisher. He, uh, he wrote uh, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. It's available for pre-order now and available on May 4th on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, Triumph uh, Triumph Books. Jake, is there anything you want to add before we move on to a, a Patreon question that we have?
1: Uh, the, my last selling point on the book, I and mean, we talked some stories today, and there's more in the book that we haven't talked about, especially Kings. I mean, a lot more that we haven't sure. talked about, but some more King stuff. I really think that 90% of the book, is either a new reported material or something that's furthered from what we've seen in the public? Like the Kobe Sharman thing, like we all know soft as toilet paper, but I, I, I flushed that scene out more. And for one more Kings teaser, I'm not gonna say what it was, but there's a scene back in Vegas the next year with George Carl into into the 2015 Summer League after the whole snake in the grass thing, the Kings are all practicing like they're they young practicing in the gym with some high school. That's what a lot of teams do. They go practice in these big sprawling high schools out in Nevada. Um, there's a scene where Vlade, George Carl, and Demarcus Cousins are in a high school cafeteria while the other team is practicing. While the rest of the team is practicing, kind of airing out all their grievances. That's my tease for wow. one more scene. <laughs> to, uh,
2: Jake, we we want to thank you before we move on for 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 coming on and allowing allowing us to argue with you and allowing us to uh to pick your brain on everything kings it's been it's been a real pleasure to have you and hopefully we can have you some back uh, back at some point as well for sure thank you guys for
0: thanks jake you're great Uh, really thanks jake i I learned a lot more from you than you did from me i know that
2: (laughs) (laughs) tony let's move on to the patreon question and uh, jake if you can you, you feel free to answer it if it's something that's relevant to you as well let's
3: do it all right uh every week on this podcast we ask one question from our king's herald patrons and then um you know if you submit a question you don't hear on the podcast don't worry because once a month we do a patreon exclusive show where we take all the rest of the questions that weren't used on the main show and we ask them all to jerry there question this week is coming from our old pal dave lack Uh, i thought this was an interesting question for jerry because i know I've seen some, um, maybe some light criticism of the Kings broadcast team for maybe being a little bit too positive despite the nine-game losing streak and maybe being a little bit afraid to, to loft heavy criticism at the players or the coaching staff or front office or whatever. So Dave asks, uh, Jerry, you have been in NBA coaching, admin, Monarchs, GM, broadcasting teams, same a few, and are now retired. How autonomous were you allowed to be, whether it was um, league rules or individual team, or network rules as far as your ability to give true opinion over the years. Um, so that's more specifically to broadcasting, but I think just in all the roles, um, how, uh, how much autonomy did you have in what you were saying publicly?
0: Well, I, I, I think you're always uh, uh, under a little bit of pressure there. If you're a local broadcaster working for mm-hmm. a, you know, you're an employee. And I think yeah. whether you're working for Target or Walmart, you're not probably going to stand out in front of the cash cash register and say this is really a crappy place to work, uh, <laughs> if you enjoy getting a check. But sure. uh, yeah. uh, but I, I I did feel like in the broadcast I had you know I, I had freedom to to be somewhat fair. I, I mean what I did that was probably homerism which I admit to, I think all local broadcasters are homers. If anybody says otherwise is a liar, an absolute liar. Uh, but I, I tried it rather than really get critical about our team, which I didn't know how much good that would do, totally negative. I would try to praise the other team because I love basketball and I like good basketball being played. So I'd try to find reasons to praise the other team for their good play as to spend all my time ripping on the, the Kings guys for bad play but I thought that kind of got the message across but uh, you know I the other thing I I did try to do too uh, was not not just get overhyped you know I think too many broadcasts now are just overhype everything you know it's like geez a guy makes a 12 foot jump shot at 16 to 10 and guys are going nuts it's like well that guy just paid he's getting 15 million dollars a year to make a jump shot I don't think we need to make more of it than that uh it's a nice open shot he made it uh and I I I think you know it's almost we're seeing them around the league and certainly our broadcast team is way in my mind uh, much I love the guys individually I think they're just going overboard on that kind of stuff too much uh because it uh you know it's still a it's still basketball and I, I think boy as a viewer I just want to sit back and really have them talking about the game in front of me and uh you know, the key plays uh, and, and, and the truly exciting plays get excited about. It. But when you're getting excited about routine nothings, then how do you really get excited about really exciting plays and game win? So, you know, that's my thoughts on that.
2: Gary, that leads me to a question about uh, specifically Eric Collins, the, uh, uh, the, the Hornets announcer. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen much of his highlights or seen seen much of his calls this year, but Eric Collins is at 110% every time. And it, sometimes there'll be a steal and a layup that you'd think he just, he just won a national championship with. Do you have any opinion on that, that level of announcing?
0: I, I do. And I think it's, it's way over the top. It, it doesn't serve its purpose. And I'd really like to get Jake's thought on because I know he watches a lot of basketball, but, but I mean, I, I just don't think it it really serves what you're trying to do. You know, you're, uh, I think if anything, you may be driving away more people than you're bringing in. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm old school. I admit that. And, uh, you know, I, I know that. But I, I just think and, and, you know, and I know I was certainly goofy and everything else. But, uh, but you know, you tried to keep it, you know, within a reasonable frame and not disrespect the game.
1: Yeah, I, I see. It. It's it's all like talk about every local broadcaster homers for sure, and I'm I saw it a lot when I was going to games before the pandemic happened. You know, being in New York, Knicks and Nets, we get four teams here almost every week. Pre-game, you know, the local media is doing their whole thing. The local broadcast talk about every Wednesday night game like it's the Super Bowl, and it definitely <laughs> it definitely makes it have the reverse effect for me. Like to me, I get more down because all right. This, this is before the Nets. of The Nets, like Kings, Nets on a Thursday. Like I don't. This is just like an NBA game. Which is, I'm not complaining. I'm happy to be here. But this is not the clash of the Titans. You guys are making it at the. Team. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you there, Jerry. And I also think the issues um, with, you know, objectivity in commentary varies team to team because certain teams, like they're the networks either owned by the organization or they're paying you know a twenty million dollar annual rights deal. And also like the broadcasters sometimes are flying on the team charter and they're really part of the team. They know these guys, I know the coaching staff. So they, they kind of have to, you know, and, and they're treated well in order to be, you know, saying complimentary things about the franchise. So it's difficult, but I think Jim Peterson uh, with the Wolves does an excellent job yes. of, of being yes. when, when like, Oh, that's see, that's the pass you should have made, but he does it in like a constructive way in a teaching way that I think is a, is a way to kind of balance that line where you're not being critical and criticizing, you're more saying like, oh, this is what you should do or could do better in order to be a better player and a better team.
2: I think guys that get overhyped, I think some of it is because of the uh, the world we live in in terms of sound bites and watching a thirty second play on 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 social media. and that gets really good play in terms of somebody screaming till their their lungs blow out of their their throat because it's oh holy shit, you know that was a that must have been a, a real big play in the game, and it was middle of the third quarter, and they were down twenty five points. But I think you're right that in over the course of a full game, I think I'd mute it or turn it off because it's just like, I don't need, if it's, if it's at this level the entire time, it, it's going to drive me insane. Yeah. But Tony, Tony, uh, last word on this one. What do you think of it?
3: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm from Boston too. I know Jake mentioned you went to school here. So I, I grew up on Tommy Heinsohn. It doesn't get more over the top and wild. <laughs> so I, I probably have a higher threshold for tolerance on this stuff because, you know, obviously Tommy is, is not with us anymore. And I miss him, you know, but again, that's a guy that I grew up as a, that's my earliest basketball memories. And I think Mike Gorman is great. I think Mike Gorman's one of the best mm-hmm. guys ever. But uh, so, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you guys, you know, just, but I also understand that we are, we are the top 1% of, of basketball watchers. And for the, the regular general public who is just watching a game, it probably doesn't bother them as much, but if you're watching sure. uh, 82 games of bad basketball every single year, like we have for 15 years, it does get pretty grating to hear how uh, great players are or things are. And I mean, it especially hits home. That's why I asked the question. The Kings just broke their nine game losing streak. But through that entire nine game losing streak, you're hearing about how great this play was or that play was And As someone who watched all nine of those games, I just don't want to hear it. But I understand that, again, we are, we are the ones that are watching every second. And a lot of people aren't. Yeah.
2: We're going to roll over to uh, the Reynolds wrap up. Jerry, what do you have for us today?
3: Well, you know, first of all, I, I just really
0: am thrilled uh, to get to talk uh, basketball with Jake. I thought that was uh, I'd read read through uh, you you know, you know, what great. you said on the. Yeah, I, I just thought you made up made some great points, you know, and I think it's a lot that uh, hopefully the league uh, itself will look take a look at because
1: uh, I'd love for them to read it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, like I always said I. I try to give my opinions. The league don't pay <laughs> attention to me, and I know they'd be way better off if they would, uh, especially on the rules about three-point shooting and everything. But, but I, I, but I do think the, you know, the <laughs> anything they can do to to keep this game, make this game better, you know, and 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 make the, the league stronger. I, you know, I love basketball, and, and I am concerned with the, the ratings. Uh, I think there's some. I think when fans come back, I, I think anything you can do to make the game better and more prosperous and all that, uh, m- not just because I love basketball, but I'll, I'll point out to you, I have several NBA pensions, pinge- and I want to make sure they're very <laughs> profitable going forward. So, uh, so, so my selfishness comes out, Jake. I just want you to know that.
2: We're all selfish for this. Well, uh, that that's uh that's uh, going to wrap up this episode of it. If uh, if you like this podcast, please uh, like, rate, and subscribe wherever you find us and wherever you listen to us. And once again, this is uh, this has been Jake Fisher, who is um he, he wrote uh, "Built to Lose: How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever." It's available for pre-order now. I've pre-ordered my copy before me and me naked Nick had even talked about coming on the podcast. Thank you, man. And uh, I'm I'm going to invest. I'm going to invest.
0: <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. And and, and Jake you, and Jake, you have no idea how hard. It- that is me spend
2: money, but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> it's uh, it's available on uh, May fourth on Amazon, uh, Barnes and no- uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, Triumph Books. Jake, thanks so much for having us on, or having having uh, having us talk to you, and uh, yeah, we appreciate you. We for for have it. We hope to come back someday.
1: I got to run. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you.
2: You guys have a great day.